to Open Minds UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and we have Martin Ruski-Willis on the line with us, straight from Russia. Privyet, privyet. What's that mean? That means, hello? Oh, privyet, thank you. The other way is Svitcha, but it's just so hard to say. Uh Uh-huh. So do you do that? You walk around saying privyet? Yeah, I'll say Privyet and Dobry Utra, which means good morning, Dobry mm-hmm. Nietzsche, uh, good evening, stuff like that. But I don't speak. Uh, I'm trying to learn Cyrillic um, just because I'm trying to learn to find, you know, like if you're somewhere where you need to find a bathroom, it'd be pretty nice if you knew how it was spelled. You know what I mean? Or yeah. if you wanted to buy water or something like that. So um, Cyrillic's not really that hard. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not really that hard to learn. It's You just use association and... Um, so it's not really that bad. And, and for people but, who don't know, those are like the Russian symbols that look different. Like the backward R is a big one. What is that? The backward R is yeah. Oh. Yeah. It just um, – now, I don't know exactly what it's, any of them are called, but I just know the sounds that they make. Uh-huh. So it's like a yeah, yatibera. something like that. You, you'd use that in that circumstance. Wow. You're sounding very like Russian. <laughs> I know. Well, this is the third time, you know, and I think I've been on the show, um, your show, three times here, right? This uh-huh. is the third time. Yeah, yeah. pretty cool, pretty cool. So. And and for the people out there, so these big conspiracies don't um, come up like you're working with maybe the Russians and the Americans, I don't know, to, to subvert our country's UFO research or something. Um, why don't you clear the air about why you're out there? Um. I want to use the Fifth Amendment, actually. Oh, you do? No, I'm just kidding. No, no, I'm I'm here with my uh, my longtime girlfriend. Her family's from Russia, and her parents um, are right on the Black Sea. Mm. And so, you know, and I actually bring my dog. I have a new dog this year. Uh, unfortunately, my other one is gone, but I brought my new dog this year, and he's like trying to attack every single dog alive oh, no. see it's pretty funny and he's another uh, chihuahua matter. right but they have chihuahuas yes, out he, there don't they yes they do and he's uh he's tried to tangle with a few of them yes oh my goodness yeah. that bad little boy what's his name his name is a russian name too it's a businka oh uh, really i don't really like the name to be honest with you but you know mm-hmm. uh, but anyway it means little bead of a necklace <laughs> businka so, businka he's mm-hmm. quite a character that is an interesting name for a Chihuahua. That's for sure. <laughs> I know doesn't doesn't really fit, mm-hmm. but the people here get it, so that's it. You know. I am Businka Chihuahua. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder he's trying to start fights with everybody. He feels stuff. Yeah. He's like, I'm Businka. <laughs> yeah, it's his name. It all started with the name. 
Who are you, uh, little Pepe? I will crush <laughs> you, Pepe. I am Businka. <laughs> hey, you do that pretty well. <laughs> so, cool. So that's why you're in Russia. And you know what? Even if you would have pled the fifth, you're not the type of personality I think that uh, conspiracies crop up around. I, I have not heard a conspiracy about you uh, being some mm. sort of alien or disinformationist. Um, have there been any that well, you're aware you of? Well, you no, not not because of Russia, but you know how it's typical when you have your own show and and the the remarks you get um, yeah. and comments and things like that. So yeah, but many times uh, people have said. You know something about debunking or whatever, but mm. I'm sure you get that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. It's typical stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll have to keep an eye on you. Yeah, I know. Now we'll have to start doing the Russian thing. We'll yeah. have to do a FOIA on why did Martin go to Russia. <laughs> See if we could get John <laughs> Greenwald good. to research this for us. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right. Well, my guest, very exciting, uh, Mark O'Connell. He hmm. uh, wrote this new book, uh, The Close Encounters Man, about J. Allen Hynek. And Dr. J. Allen Hynek, uh, I talk about him a lot because I'm such a fan, but he, of course, mm -hmm. was the uh, astronomer who aided the Air Force in their official UFO investigations from 1947 to, what, 1969, I believe i feel like yeah. i'm getting that wrong but that's right isn't it i think that's right yeah so uh, before he started kufos his own uh scientific investigation into ufos and so very insightful into his life mark and i will talk about uh you know his background and everything uh marks and hynek's and uh it, it's a great story hynek is a really interesting character so definitely yeah. run out and purchase this book the close encounters man but we'll talk about that more with mark o'connell in just a few minutes here but prior to that uh we've been out for two weeks so there was a little bit of, of a mix-up i didn't have a show last week uh due to mix up with dates and stuff like that i most humbly apologize but we do have a show today and then uh we might not have a show next week because this weekend is a roswell festival Oh, which yeah. uh very excited about. There'll be a whole bunch of us researchers out there. The talk I'm doing is for the Roswell Daily Record, and I believe Chase Kletsky is going to be the MC of that event, which is sponsored and, and uh, I know, organized largely by KGRA, Race Hobbs of KGRA Radio. Uh, of course, many of you, since you listen to UFO podcasts, are probably familiar with that. And um, we're going to have like Richard Dolan, I think Mark D'Antonio, myself, David Marler. Um, I'm sorry, I know I'm forgetting names, but uh, a lot of people. So you could, guys could look up the Roswell UFO Festival. And I've been posting on my Facebook a bunch of links uh, also to the festival to find out more about that. So hopefully some of you will be out there. It's going to be hot in the desert it's not an easy place to get to mm -hmm. although they have flights from texas and phoenix now that go directly into roswell so um even though i've probably driven out there i wouldn't i can't say a dozen times but quite a dang few amount of times um and so uh now i'll be flying i flew last year too so it's very nice yeah i bet it is very convenient mm-hmm so yeah. a lot of fun. So 
you know, everybody's going to have to, if you're out there, say hello. Please come by and, and say hi. We're going to be at a steakhouse. I think it's called J-Bob's. Uh, I laugh because it's kind of weird to have, you know, these UFO lectures at a steakhouse. But um, it's attached to the Sallyport Inn, which is closed down. So the restaurant's still open, but the, the hotel's closed. Um, huh. Yeah, so very interesting situation. So that'll be cool. And then at the museum, as usual, they're doing talks and everything. And I did speak for years at the museum, but then last year the, the paper asked me to speak, and um, I, I wasn't sure if I was still speaking at the museum, so I went ahead with the paper, and now I'm speaking with them again. But the museum, of course, has a lot of great people. They've got Yvonne Smith, Travis Walton, um, Stanton Friedman, uh, Kathleen Martin and Don Schmidt, of course, is always there. Don Schmidt is uh, the president of the board for the UFO Museum in Roswell. So mm-hmm. it's going to be fun to see all those guys, too. So it's it's fun. It's a fun gathering to be able to see all your friends and, and colleagues and everything out there. Um, oh, I bet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a lot of fun. So that's what's coming up in a few days. I will try to do an interview. I mean... There's a couple of things I'd like to talk to people about. Chase Kletsky, um, you know, finished her examination of the skull, the Lloyd Pye right. star child skull, uh, mm-hmm. in which she concluded, and she has a great report on this, that it, that it's human, that it's not an alien. And, Spoiler alert. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. So people yeah. can see that. And, I was, you know, you could go to my Facebook or Chase Kletsky's and, and see more about that. Um, but I want to ask her about this new kind of thing that you will talk about in the news. But uh, And then there's Nick Pope, and I would love to talk to him about something else we'll be talking about in the news, which is these uh, new uh, UK UFO files. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to grab one or both and, and do some interviews. Uh, if I don't do them at the event, I, I will have them on sometime soon anyway. And, of course, now Martin's going to try to scramble to steal these guys and get them first. <laughs> no, Nick Pope uh, Nick Pope has, uh, will not be on my show. He's uh, he's turned me down a number of times. He just says that he has a certain amount of shows that he appears on, one of them being yours, by golly. And um, he just doesn't want to take on any more shows. So that's, Oh, really? That's well, maybe I'll talk yeah. to him and, and see what I can do. He's a good yeah. buddy. Well, so, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead because I've got some news regarding him and others, but we'll get to that in the news. Uh, so let's move on to the news section with Martin Ruski Willis. Yes, previous. What you got for me, buddy? Well, I really like this uh, this sighting. This was a report uh, written by uh, written up for um, Open Minds TV for uh, by Roger Marsh and military jets chased a sphere. UFO claims witness. Now, this happened in Tai um, Tai, Georgia, and uh, this guy was actually in his backyard um, just, you know, stargazing back in February of, of uh, this year. And uh, he heard first he heard like low speed jet engines just north of him and he turned to see what it was. And there was a row of flashing white strobe lights. Um, and then there was a reddish orange ball or spear right in the middle of these jets and moving real slow. When they when he says moving real slow, now a jet, uh, a military jet can't really stay airborne unless there's uh, opposing wind um, below 80 knots. You know, otherwise it's just going to go down. It can't stay afloat. So, so it had to be going at least 80 miles, uh, 80 knots. Um, 
most likely. And so there were six uh, fighter jets, and they flew overhead. He was uh, guessing about 500 feet, which is very low. And um, they actually flanked. They were they were flanking um, this orange spear that appeared to be about uh, 30 feet in diameter, and it was uh, sort of like an orange or a reddish orange, and it was very dim with no strobe lights or anything of any kind. And after they flew over the jet on the west side of the sphere, backed off and turned and got right behind the orange sphere. And then he kind of lost them to the uh, tree line. He couldn't see them any longer. And he was saying the direction they were flying, they were not flying toward um, a air base or anything that he knew of. And um, and he wrote, I think he, he did a very nice job. He was, I think he's actually a very good witness. And he wrote up um, his own graphics on uh, the flight uh, formation and everything uh, with the spear in the center. And uh, it was uh, closed as, um, let's see, there was uh, Brian uh, Trainer and uh, Jeremy Haslam. They investigated this and closed it as unknown. And a quote from them is, the evidence clearly leads to the conclusion that this is an unknown other sighting event. And they stated, however, the 30-foot glowing reddish ore being escorted uh, by very recognizable jet planes begs the question, one, did the jet planes pilots know what the orb was that they were escorting? And two, what was their destination? So I personally think this is a really great, great sighting. I know there's only one witness, um, but uh, I think it's a good one myself. Yeah, it's interesting. It's always tough when, uh, you know, with anecdotal information, but uh, this, you know, these MUFON investigators felt that this was an honest um, witness. And what's interesting, too, what I loved about this case, I always love the cases that have more visuals, but this witness, uh, the paperwork, you know, the drawings Mm -hmm. that they did with the estimations of where the craft were and details and information, and you could see these on the story at openminds.tv, but their drawings are really uh, helpful and and elaborate. You know, they're they're uh, yes, they could you could tell this person put a lot of time and effort into this. Um, yes, which just uh, shows that they must have been really uh, shocked and surprised by it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think um. I don't think anyone's going to put this much effort into, um, you know, I don't dare say the word hoax, but I, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, read that in any type of way to me. Mm-hmm. It uh, just really seems interesting. Now, I wonder if there's any way they can try to gain any type of radar uh, data on this at all. You know, that's a, that's always the tough one. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the good part about these cases, and one of the cool things, one of my favorite parts of MUFON is the Scientific Review Board, uh, led by Robert Powell. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have them on every year to talk about their top ten, but they come up with a top uh, ten. And on their cases that they feel are really significant, they'll put more effort to try to discover some more about those cases. So I could see this Good. one, you know, making a top ten, and hopefully then they will uh, pursue this case to figure out if they can find out more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. And one last thing, thing about this. Isn't that interesting? The city's name is Tai Tai, and it's in yeah. Tift County <laughs> in Georgia. I know. It doesn't – Those are interesting I, I have, names. No, I never heard of it before, and my family's from Georgia, and I've never really? heard of this. Yeah. 
Had you heard of Tift County? Never heard of it. No. Wow. We're from, uh, uh, my family's all from uh, about 50 or 60 miles away from Atlanta in a area called LaGrange, LaGrange, Georgia area. Uh-huh. So no, never heard, never heard hell, as they say. Yeah. But it's right near the Florida border. I think it's about 60 or 70 miles from the uh, Florida border. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's south South Georgia. So, more news. Um, the wow signal. Did you read much about this? Um, I have seen a lot of things going on, and I guess it's a it's a non it's a non story, really. Um, well, is that it depends. What I'm understanding. Uh, it, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, but uh, it's interesting. One interesting aspect of this is the person who uh, started all of this is uh, Antonio Paris. Have you ever had him on your show? No. No. Yeah, so he is an astronomer, and uh, he uh, was a MUFON investigator. Uh, before, then he left MUFON, and he created his own in paranormal investigation group. Um, so he's really been into the paranormal, and I've had him on my show, and we've actually talked about this topic and this project he was working on. So he's a really interesting guy, and he's got some great credentials. Uh, so mm. he is, you know, uh, the real deal, which is why this paper is uh, such a big deal. He's an astronomer at St. Petersburg College in Florida. So mm. uh, what Antonio had done with a colleague is research the wow signal because uh, they decided to focus more on it and to figure out what it might be to see if they can figure out, you know, is it really anomalous? Well, what they decided is that, and they wrote this up in a paper in the Journal of the Washington Academy of Sciences, and uh, the media got a hold of this recently, so they've been writing up saying, uh, the wow signal, it looks like it may have been figured out. It's actually a couple comets. So these comets, comets do make a, a radio signals at a certain frequency, and this is the frequency of the wow signal. And I should explain what the wow signal is. Uh, the wow signal was captured in August of 1977. It's a radio uh, signal that was captured by a telescope called the Big Ear at Ohio State University. So the SETI people, you know, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, these scientists like the movie Contact who are listening for signals, were looking at through all the paper feeds and they saw a really powerful signal that was strange. So the scientist, his name was Jerry Ammon, I think is how you say it, circled it and he wrote, wow, exclamation mark on the side. So they were never able to figure out what this signal was. Uh, it was strong and, and they ruled out everything they, they thought it might be. And they still think it's possibly strange. You know, they don't know where it comes from. Um, but that's why Antonio Paris is wanting to try to figure it out. What Antonio figured out is that there were a couple comets in that area at that time. Comets do make uh, radio signals at that frequency, and those comets were not known in 1977. So he thought, oh, ah. okay, see, they didn't know what that these comets existed back then. That's why they made the mistake, and that's the gist of his paper. However, ah. the hmm. SETI scientists disagree. 
Really? So uh, Jerry Amon, the scientist who originally found it, he said, no, uh, I don't think so. And Seth Shostak, of course, the most famous SETI scientist probably, besides Frank Drake, uh, wrote up a paper as well on this saying, yeah, I don't think so either. Their argument is that comets don't make very strong signals, for one. Um, also, that the uh, comets were not exactly in the right place. And then their third argument is that there were actually two horns, they call them. So there were two uh, listening devices. One scan, and they scan different areas at different times. But the second one comes along within a minute or so of the first. So it was only the first device that recorded the, the wow signal. The second device, which swept the same area soon after, did not get the signal. Mm. And their argument was that the signal had to have turned off uh, because comets don't just turn on and off. Nothing in nature turns on and off. The, yeah. the signal persists um, or fades out or something like that. So that's why they rule out comets, and they totally disagree it's comets. Uh, wow. Life Science asked Antonio Perez, well, what do you think about this? And he agreed. He was like, you know what? They're right. Uh, I'm not sure why they, they didn't show up on the second feed. Uh, he said his guess is, and he has some information to suggest that, perhaps the telescope itself was not working correctly. And that's why mm. he didn't get it. But, of course, the onus is on him to prove that. Um, but he says he's still mm -hmm. working on it. So he's got a study going where they uh, have a larger, uh, a 10-meter radio telescope where they're going to examine um, comets and this uh, signal, that the radio signal that they create. Because uh, according to him, and it sounds accurate, nobody's really studied that aspect uh, thoroughly. So it'll still be some novel um, research that he'll be doing. But... You know, the debate is out there now. And even though the SETI scientists are saying, hey, guys, the wow signal still not explained. Uh, it could be ET. It could be something else. We just don't know. Uh, a lot of mainstream media or some scientists even are saying, nope, it's figured out. It's comets. So mm -hmm. it, it's just kind of sparked this debate. Um, but it's kind of cool that SETI came out and said, no, it could still be E.T., you know, um, and wow. others, you know. So this debate is, is raging right now. Yeah. Wow. So I guess it's not a non-story. Um, you know, uh, Seth Shostak's sense of humor, I remember asking him about the wow signal, you know, a few years ago. And he said, yeah, if only he had written down something. I forgot what he said, but it was pretty funny. Mm. If only the guy had written down something else beside the word wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be such a, we wouldn't be talking about it. Yeah, yeah. People wouldn't be as excited about the interesting signal. Yeah, that's instead right. Of the wow signal. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's cool because this whole debate was sparked off by, you know, for a lack of a better term, a ufologist, someone who's interested in UFOs and stuff. So he's spoken hmm. at a, quite a few conferences, UFO conferences, and things like that. So. Yeah, people can Google him to find more or, of course, find some more at our story. And I did link to my podcast, my last podcast with Antonio. So I like him. He's a he's a good thinker. Um, he's a really interesting guy. Wow. The other story, uh, these MJ-12 documents that came yeah. out. 
So this 47-page mm. document uh, alleging to be MJ-12 documents, ultra top secret, and uh, essentially how they came out was an associate of yours, someone you worked with in the past, uh, Heather Wade, who essentially took over Art Bell's podcast. So Art Bell, everybody was waiting. Oh, my gosh, Art Bell is coming back to the radio. He's going to do a podcast. Oh, and everybody's excited. And they wait months and months and months and months. Finally, Art Bell comes on the air. It only lasted a few episodes before he retired yet again. And her, yes. his producer, Heather Wade, uh, essentially took over the show, and she's been doing it ever since. Some of you may listen. And she was given, uh, from a source she says, uh, it seems like she knows who it is, uh, and she feels the source is credible, but an, anon an anonymous source gave her these alleged uh, MJ-12 documents that talk about yeah, the recovery of several aliens, uh, several crashed UFOs, this sort of thing. And I think the most telling part, if you're just doing kind of a cursory uh, review of these documents, is the alleged interview with an alien, which I find, and I think every most everybody else does as well, utterly ridiculous i mean it, it yeah. seems like it's written by a teenager now i feel the documents are well put together whoever did this i think is intelligent and capable and did a good job putting them together because i think they'll probably fool a lot of people but uh they need they should have taken that section out you know they probably would have been taken more seriously uh if they would have yes. taken that out because i i think that it is a hoax personally but uh, and most I, I people have come out saying yeah. that go ahead i'm sorry yeah, no, I, I I think it's a I actually think it's a hoax too. And I I had uh, Kevin Randall on my show. He's kind of dissected this thing all the way through. But you're right. The 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 part where it really falls apart. I read through the whole thing myself, and where it really falls apart is when it comes to the ET interview. And not that we'd really know what an extraterrestrial would say to any of the but but the questions for one thing i mean the person who actually did this didn't actually watch must have not watched the arrival that movie because in in that movie they were asking some really uh great questions yeah uh, and uh so the questions weren't you know the important questions weren't even asked and um the answers were like nick pope uh wrote on his tweet there like a high school student attempting badly to write science fiction mm -hmm. so not not so not so good um um kevin was uh going to be on heather's show but he got bumped at the last minute and you know you can kind of use your own thoughts on how the how why that happened um i don't think you know i think it's the wave is still being ridden because this thing's getting a lot of uh a lot of traction yeah I mean, more and more people are coming out and calling it a hoax. Um, even Steve Bassett, he he originally, I think that's where I first heard about it, because he emailed the next morning after these came out, and he said, you know, these could be real. I don't know. We're still looking at them. Um, like yeah. Heather Wade said, Stanton Friedman's looking at them. Um, although my listeners will know, Stanton and I disagree about DMJ-12 files quite a bit. Um, for reasons you can see, and I, do, I always talk with him and, and ask him about this stuff, but you could see that in my story uh, at Open Mindset TV. But um, 
so I, I'm not sure if he's the best analyzer. Anyway, but he has not said anything. I mean, he had said he's still looking into it. Uh, even somebody in one of my forums had said he's still looking into it. So uh, he has not come down. But Bassett has sent out another email in the last couple of days saying uh, he's pretty sure he's uh, out of everybody he's talked to. You know, it looks like they're uh, a hoax. So he's kind of come down on that mm -hmm. side. As you've said, Nick Pope has been interviewed several times, and he also feels that way. Um, so, yeah, so that's where that is. Did you notice on the first page it says uh, read and destroy? <laughs> yeah, I did you see know. that. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously that didn't get done. And there was a, there was a couple of other like minor flaws uh well, one that. silly thing about all of these documents also is the organization is referred to, and in this document as well, several different names, MJ-12, Magic, um, Majestic-12, yes. all of these different names, and, and that, you know, seems ridiculous as well. I, you know, a project name is not like... Uh, it's one name. That's it. It's, it's not a... Mm -hmm important uh, enough to keep using different types of names for a project whereas you know on something like the MJ12 which it's all about the name MJ12 it makes more sense that hoaxers would create all of these different use all of these different terms that are out there um, inside their yes. their hoax documents so well also the ultra top secret the ultra part is uh, British um, so, um, according to, <clears throat> pardon me, that's according to Kevin Randall. I don't know myself. Yeah, um, he would know. But someone certainly put a lot of effort into it. That's for, I mean, a lot, a lot of effort into it. Yeah, I think so. Mm. So interesting, but it sounds like Heather Wade is still holding out hope that uh, that they're real. Uh, I'm guessing. Yeah. Or maybe just riding a wave of publicity. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. then uh, another one is the UK UFO files. So, of course, we've had a lot about this before in the past, uh, especially when we interviewed John Burroughs and when we had him at the UFO Congress, because it was due to John Burroughs that we found out about these files. So essentially, John Burroughs, while investigating, he's a witness to the Rendlesham Forest incident from 1980. You know, he was out there in the UK at this base uh, that was unleashed by the U.S. Air Force from the uh, Ministry of Defense when they saw these UFOs and Burroughs saw that and he was looking into it because he believes he, he had physical effects from this incident um, but also uh, he wanted to know more about it and he found there should be some more files out there that weren't out there. Now this was while the UK government was releasing uh, allegedly all of their UFO files in batches over several years. And they told him, well, you're going to have to wait till they come out. We're putting them out in batches. Well, the last batch comes out in like 2013. I believe it was June. So this month, um, four years ago. And the files weren't in there. So he starts harassing him. Where are, you, where are these files? When are you going to put out these files? And they're essentially ignoring him. Um, but mm -hmm. one person, because he had written some stories on this, one person in the UK uh, did a FOIA request and said, where are these files? And they responded to this person and said, oops, sorry, I guess we didn't release all the UFO files. We'll have them out soon. And this is on their their uh, page, uh, FOIA page. 
And that was 2014. They said it would probably take them a while. Going to take us like nine months to get these files out. But nine months comes and goes. Another year comes and goes. Other people get involved, including a lord, uh, a gentleman in the House of Lords, uh, you know, sir so-and-so. Uh, if you get knighted, you get to be a part of the House of Lords, essentially. And and he asked the MOD in, in one of their large group meetings, where are these files? And they said, oh, we're working on it. So March, I think, was the last time they were supposed to get them out. And they, they kept saying they were going to get them out, and they didn't. Well, finally, they're out. However, as Nick Pope has pointed out, and he I got a quote for him in our story, in the past, when they released UFO files, they would get a hold of Nick, they would give him a preview, and then uh, when they launched, like you know, a lot of places do with the media, uh, I get involved with that where they give me some information and tell me you can't release it until the, uh, this period of time, you know. So you're ready. So the media is ready, and stories go out. Well, they didn't even tell Nick about it. Uh, just very quietly, hmm. they posted on a website. Uh, they responded to some gentleman actually, and said, "Hey." Uh, we've released the files. Here's a link to them. And if you go to the link, it's only a list of the files. It's not the files themselves. And even though they said there are supposed to be 18 files, there's only 15 on this list. There's a small little sentence that describes each file, but when you click on it, it says these are not digitized. You actually have to go to the National Archives in queue which is uh, just outside of London, to actually go physically see these files, So, which is very strange. And Nick thinks that they're just trying to be sneaky. And uh, so Nick Pope is taking it upon himself to make sure all the media knows about this. And sure enough, now these stories are coming out. And uh, the Daily Mail actually did write a story today. Actually, I think it came out yesterday about some of these files because they got to go take a look at some of them and they do have some interesting ufo cases in there including one in october 5th 1996 where bright lights were seen by many people um for uh, quite a long period of time um they asked nick pope about it and he said yeah i remember that you know it was a big deal uh and uh they said it was uh, because they did catch it on radar that they think it was just a nearby church spire. But uh, Nick <laughs> says, you know, it was a much more interesting case than that. Um, and it was during what Nick says is a UFO flap. So a lot of other UFOs being seen during that period of time. So, hmm. yeah, so some interesting stuff in these files. So I'm sure there'll be more to come as people look at those. But what Nick wants to do is make sure that, you know, hopefully the media pressures the U.K. government and uh, asks questions where enough where the government kind of gives in and does what they should have done in the first place, like they did with the other files, and post digital versions of them online um, mm -hmm. for free. And this is something different about the U.K. government. They own the files. They have copyright. Unlike here in the United States, NASA files, NASA photos, anything, you know, anything that's released that's a government document in the United States, you can use it. There's no copyright. You as a taxpayer can do what you want with that. You can't, wow. you can't oh. adjust it and hoax stuff, but, you know, you can use it. In the U.K., mm -hmm. it's different. In the U.K., they maintain copyright. 
So you can purchase copies, but you can't share those copies with other people. So you can't just put them online like John Greenwald does. That's illegal. Uh, of course, he, he mm. only does that with U.S. files, which is no problem. But in the U.K., you know, they can come after you for saying, hey, you're violating our copyright. So they actually charge for their files. So it was something special when they used to release UFO files that they were offering them for free for a month. If you go back now to get those files, you'll see you'll have to pay for them. And they're pretty expensive because there's so many of them. So... Yeah, mm. so hopefully we'll see some more about this, but it's it's you know kind of strange they're being so sneaky. Yeah, that is weird, huh? Taking so long as well. Yeah, and then finally something I haven't written about and may or may not, I probably will eventually. It's kind of Roswell slides two, uh, some people uh, are calling uh, it, uh, and I think it is oh, somewhat yeah. similar. And uh, Gaia has released this video, and uh, you know Gaia, unfortunately. It's part of Gaim. So Gaim is this big company. If you do yoga, you know Gaim. Uh, if you go to Target and go into the sports section, you're going to find, especially when it comes to yoga pads, stuff like that, you'll find a bunch of stuff made by this company called Gaim. They do like yoga pants and and um, clothing for women and, and that sort of thing. And they've also gotten into new age stuff and they have this channel where they do these new age videos and everything. And unfortunately, the information is really bad. I mean, it's it's not completely. I mean, there are some UFO researchers that are on some of these shows, but a lot of what they feature are these really, um, uh, you know, uh, dubious and, and uncredible information, especially when it comes to when they talk about UFOs. So they released a video where they're working with Jaime Musan, infamous now because especially uh, of many other, you know, um, cases of known hoaxes that he has uh, tried to push on people. But uh, the Roswell slides, which, of course, we talked a lot about, um, was one of those. Now they've got these this skeleton in, from Peru that they're trying to suggest is alien or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. and unfortunately there, there, uh, you know, there's a lot of information out there, uh, where you could read about the people involved, the, uh, supposed scientists who are people who have been behind other totally dubious and discredited investigations. So even, and the sad part is, is even if there is something mysterious about this thing that they're trying to promote as a, as another alien body, um, yeah. they're not the best people to research it. They're not credible, and they are people who have either uh, spun and misconstrued uh, investigation or, or data in the past or have been just completely outright dishonest, um, like in the Roswell slide situation. Um, and yeah. not all the investigators or researchers do I believe were dishonest in the Roswell slide situation, but I do believe Jaime was, um, and Jaime um, was one of the bad actors <laughs> in that situation. And uh, so how can you trust him again? Um, so, yeah, this is another thing that's out there. But uh, I know, and, and this is one of the reasons I bring it up is because of Chase. So hopefully I'll have her on again and we'll talk about this because I know she's looked at this. She has done a lot of investigation into the skulls in Peru. Um, she was out here in Arizona talking about that recently. So Chase Kletsky has some uh, insights 
into that that I think are going to be uh, more educated than most because she's done a lot of work in Peru looking at the skulls and stuff like that. So I'm really curious to hear her take on it. So I'll see her this weekend and I'll ask her about it. If if I'm lucky, we'll have some time where I'll be able to record uh, an interview with her on it. But because she's emceeing, she's probably going to be pretty busy. So we might have to wait till after the conference to talk to her about it. But uh, some good yeah. stuff there. So Yeah. So anyone can actually find this. All they have to do is put in Google Nazca uh, lines alien. That's how that's how unfortunately it comes up. And, you know, my, my very first thing that I, I looked at the trailer or whatever to the documentary they're making on it, and the very first thing I thought was, wow, bright white plaster. Right. What? Why, how could that – they might as well have painted it candy apple red or something. Um, you know, I mean, it's just like, first of all, they didn't – they never used plaster, you know, 3,000 years ago, whenever that's supposed to be, um, you know, like – and it's pure white. Um and just from experience in the business that I'm in, you know, a, a fine arts appraiser, when plaster sits around for even, you know, a hundred years, it yellows. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the plaster that's supposed to be, I don't know, what is it, 1700 years older? I can't remember what, what they said, um, is going to be, it's not going to be bright white. It's just impossible. Even if, you know, the only way that would happen is if you had an absence of any um, elements around it, no air, you know, in a vacuum or something. Otherwise, it's going to yellow. Yeah, really good point. Yep, there's yeah. a number of really good points people are bringing up about all of this. John Greenwald, actually, I was uh, messaging with him this morning. He has a write-up on this because he has someone in Peru that tells him he knows about these things. Uh, allegedly, and he says Peruvians have been faking these things, um, and that's where he believes uh-huh. it comes from. So John's not sure; he can't verify that this guy's telling you know is is accurate either. But uh, he just made me aware of that claim as well, and you can see information about that on theblackvault.com. So, so there we go. Excellent. Lots of news in the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks, I guess, huh? Yeah, I guess we made up for lost time. Yep. Yeah. You got anything else? No, um, you know, while we were doing the show, someone uh, tweeted on something about a, uh, um, let's see, uh, uh, hacked NASA is saying that the alien life has been found. So I got to look into that. I don't know what that's about yet. But uh, I don't know if that's something you have seen or heard about. Um, it just popped I've up on a seen, tweet. Well, I've been looking at the news this morning, so uh, I'm skeptical of that because I have not seen anything on that. The only thing I've seen uh, is Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I do have our news up so you could read this. He uh, has said that we're you know, talk, recently talking about how we're likely not alone in the universe type of stuff. But mm-hmm. that's the closest credible news I've read about something like that. But I think yeah. I saw something um, – in the non-credible news that mentioned something like that. So I don't Probably. waste my time with that until I, I'll look at it sometimes or if I haven't heard of it. But unfortunately, it typically does not pan out or come from credible sources. Right, right. Well, that's it on this side. All righty. Planet, yeah. Well, you sounded great. I mean, I think this happened last time, too, you, where the connection seems good, and you sound great. So uh, it's worked out really well, even though you're way out there in Russia. People are going to think we're making that up. You're, n- you're not really in Russia. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
I, I really wish I wasn't, to be honest with you. I really uh, – I, I love this time of year in the United States, you know, the 4th of July and all that. Yeah. going to be missing all that. But uh, Are but you anyway, going to try to celebrate the 4th of July out there? You know what? They they shoot off fireworks here all the time, so I can just pretend uh-huh. maybe, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But you can't, so, like, get I'll the flag out and start to sing, like, I'm proud to be an American, because you might get in no, trouble. No, huh? I might get in trouble yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, just whisper it. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, right. dosvidanya, my friend. Dosvidanya. Okay, let's go ahead and talk to Mark. I am very excited to welcome Mark O'Connell to the show. Hello. Hi, Alejandro. How are you today? Good, good. Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. So, I guess just to get to know you uh, a bit, since this is your first time on the show, your background, from what I understand, is in entertainment. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I guess predominantly you could say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got my start as a professional writer, um, writing uh writing video productions and uh eventually ended up uh selling a few scripts to star trek the next generation in deep space nine mm-hmm. um so that that kind of kind of got the career really rolling there which and, is exciting those are two of my favorite shows and uh growing up i think next generation actually probably uh was very influential in, in my interest in this topic Oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm older than you because for me it was the classic series that was a huge influence. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned in my book, Star Trek inspired a lot of people to go into science and ended up – a lot of people who ended up working at NASA. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. And, and I like to ask this question when I interview um, people like who write for films or science fiction uh, – the vision of the future often includes aliens. I mean, do you think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times when I ask the writers, they, they talk about how they use, you know, the idea as a tool um, to, to for whatever different things they're trying to say in, in their piece. But um, it also almost seems like there's this intuitive feeling that at one point we're going to be dealing with and interacting with extraterrestrial civilizations do you think that's true yeah I, I absolutely do in fact I think um, during the course of researching and writing this book I developed a very very strong opinion that not only do we humans really really want aliens to exist I think we really need them to exist I think mm. it's a deep need um, that we all feel whether whether we'll admit it or not um, and I, I kind of think it's because um, if if intelligent alien races exist elsewhere in the universe, I think it makes us feel less random. It makes us feel um, like there's more of a purpose or a point to the existence of the human race. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think there's a certain amount of reassurance there. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. You know, when you said that, it made me think of like the kid – the the loner who's just like I'm fine by myself, but of course that that loner always you know has this this uh, this need that they may not even admit to themselves, which uh, could be where a lot of people are, especially when it comes to the more mainstream scientists or those who are 
real skeptics, and we'll get to that topic, who really <laughs> refuse to even uh, allow themselves to uh, entertain the possibility. Well, in the um, in the prologue to my book, I spend a lot of time going over the history of our belief in Martians. Mm. Um, and, and again, during while I researching and writing especially that part of the book it just it, it just stuck out so strongly to me that wow this is such a part of this is such deep deeply buried part of who we are as a species that you you can't you can't you can't deny that there's this really strong pull from from outer space there's something pulling in us we really want something to be out there we need something to be out there i mean in the in the late 1800s Prominent scientists all over the world believed that something was living on Mars and that it may be hostile towards us. Mm-hmm. It may it may even be able to it may even be able to fly through space and and come visit us. And and, and when I found that this was such a strong cultural theme, even as far back as the late 1800s, like I said, that's when those wheels started turning, and I just started realizing how badly we all want this to be true. Mm-hmm. So how long have you been interested in the topic of uh, uh, UFOs? It goes all the way back to my early childhood. My, mm-hmm. my, I grew up in a small town in southern Wisconsin. My mom was a volunteer librarian at the village library. So a lot of, uh, a lot of times when she would work in the evening, she would take me along to the library because I loved books. Um, and I, I would spend hours and hours in the village library and I would always gravitate towards the, the one bookshelf and it wasn't a very big bookshelf, but there was one bookshelf that had the, the collection of books about things like, uh, Bigfoot and poltergeists and the Bermuda Triangle and, and, um, uh, of course, Eric Van Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, you know, those were all really, really big topics and, there were always at least one or two UFO books. I'm pretty sure the first UFO book I ever read was Frank Edwards' Flying Saucers, Serious Business. And I know I read some Brad Steiger books back then. The library had some of his books. So I, I just, at an early age, I would just hang out in that corner of the village library and read and probably reread every book they had in that section. And so I just became really fascinated with uh, science and outer space and space exploration and, of course, aliens. Around that time also, I started having a recurring dream. And I've heard, I've talked to other people who've had very similar recurring dreams in their childhood. And, and in my dream, I would be back on the back steps of our house. We had a huge backyard, so a very big sky over our backyard. And in my, in my recurring nightmare, I would be standing out on the back steps of the house looking up in the sky and the sky would just be choked with this gigantic armada of spaceships advancing on us. Now, I don't know if they were advancing on me or on my family or on the world in general, but I just remember looking up in the sky, seeing all these spaceships coming my way and just being absolutely terrified. Wow. You know, it's interesting. When I was a teenager, I had something somewhat similar. It was one of those dreams, you know, that's very vivid. Um where you wake up and you almost feel like it actually happened. But uh, it was me and my family, and we were in this big tube. 
uh, kind of like a hamster tube or something, but we were up in the sky, like we were being transferred from one ship to another, and uh, I was thinking, how the hell are we going to get out of this? Uh, looking around, we got to get out of this. And, and that was just the scene, and it was us and the, the family. I remember my stepdad there, and, and we're walking through this tube, and I'm just thinking, how do we get out of this? And I'm terrified that we might not. Wow. Uh, pretty weird. That's intense, but, you know, like I said, you, the more you tell people stories like that, the more you have people start to tell you, oh, my gosh, that sounds so similar to something I experienced. Mm-hmm. It, these things are really, really common experiences. Yeah. So you've been blogging about UFOs on your site, HighStrangenessUFO.com, for a while. When did you start this site? I think I started around 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of in between writing projects, and I was looking for something fun to work on. And I, I had a friend, good friend, who who had his own very successful blog. And for, for months and months and probably even years, he would tell me, Mark, you've you got to start writing a blog. You'd be a natural at it. And I would always think, yeah, but I can't think of any topic that would be so interesting to me that <laughs> I would be able to keep writing about it you know, on a daily or weekly or monthly or yearly basis. I just couldn't think of it. And then all of a sudden one day I thought, oh, wait a minute, UFOs. Of course, that I can write about. I can write about UFOs forever. Mm-hmm. So that's how it all got started. Yeah. And that's what led directly to, to my book about uh, Dr. Hynek. Mm-hmm. What sort of topics or ideas in this field inspire you most? Well, I've really, I've really gotten to be very intrigued with um, the idea of belief. Mm. It's become so clear to me through writing the blog, and also we can talk about this more uh, later. But around the time I started writing the blog, I also became a certified UFO field investigator for MUFON. So not I wasn't just blogging about UFOs, I was also investigating real UFO cases. So during that experience, I really started to learn a lot about people's systems of beliefs and how, how often um, people will, will share the same belief in something that seems just completely off the wall, and then they will completely part ways over another belief that is equally strange, but one one person is just completely biased against it and mm-hmm. refuses to accept its reality, which leads us, to, you know, to the concept of the term skeptic. Right. So I think that's that's been one of the things that I've have found most interesting is just kind of just kind of um, digging into the psychology of is there a certain type of person who sees a UFO? Is there a person type certain type of person who reports seeing a UFO? That has been very, very interesting to learn. I agree. That's one of my real uh, fascinations with this topic as well, especially in present times, you know, when it comes to belief versus facts or or, or things that may be provable um, in that, you know, and in fact, my last talk at our UFO Congress was around religion just because of that, the similarities, I think, with religion in this field and and how all that works. But that makes it even more interesting, and I think our next conversation, our next part of the conversation, even more interesting, given that you've put a lot of thought towards this in that, that turns skeptic, which will probably be a theme, uh, especially dealing with Hynek, but, uh, and it probably should be, because it, it, 
created a bit of a reaction in you when I uh, referred to you as a skeptic. And first, I apologize. I didn't mean it to be negative at all. And in fact, the group I posted it in, UFO Updates in particular, is a group that appreciates uh, a skeptical point of view, um, I know. And, and that could be a hard group actually they can really come down on people <laughs> yes, you've probably can. seen that they can be pretty yeah. harsh with uh with some of the believers for lack of a better term because i i believe there's something to this phenomena so in a way i'm a believer too but i guess uh a little more discerning uh when i used that term um what did it invoke in you did you feel i was maybe being critical yeah, I because I've I have seen and heard that word skeptic being used as an insult mm-hmm. within UFO circles, um, and there's always sort of this connotation that if you are going to be a UFO believer, then you must believe in every every aspect of the phenomenon. You must believe every right. story that you hear or read, and if you if you don't believe in even one thing then you're not a true believer. Therefore, you must be a skeptic. Therefore, you are, you know, you're on the other team. You're you're against us. Um, may, I don't know if you've experienced that before, but oh. I, have, I have absolutely seen and heard that kind of exchange go on mm-hmm. um, among among UFO enthusiasts. I'll call them that. Um, and I and I think it's disturbing. I think it's it. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's wise for us to paint everything in black and white, everything to be all or nothing. I think it's I think it's normal and I think it's actually healthy to even if you even if you do believe as you and I I believe both do even if we do believe that there is something real to this phenomenon, we still ought to be able to have um, the freedom to say well this story though. I don't want to hear about because I don't think it makes any sense and I don't think it does us any good to talk about it because it's because I just don't believe there's any truth to it. I think we have to be able to have filters. We have to have critical filters through which we pass all this UFO information that we're constantly seeing and hearing and reading about. And, and without filters, we just we can, it, we become people who are really easily fooled, and that's not good for ufology. I agree with you a hundred percent, and that's why I like to tackle these terms like skeptic or debunking or believer or belief, because uh, they do uh, become like I. People refer to me as a skeptic. You, you've uh, like you mentioned sometimes in a negative way, but sometimes not so much, uh, and I appreciate it. I my focus, and I guess it is sometimes a. a perspective thing i always try to come from the perspective of the mainstream so if uh you know and you've probably done this if if you're having an interview on a mainstream uh media organization and they refer to you it's a ufo interview but they refer to you as a skeptic it's a real positive thing usually it means that okay you know this guy's going to be discerning he's going to give us and mostly what i'm arguing on those shows is that this is a legitimate phenomenon that's that's terribly interesting. So it works for me on that. Um, and so I try to stay away from the perspective of the ufologist. But at the same time, in the UFO circles, 
I think that that's a problem, what you're talking about, the same exact problem you're talking about. So it's important for those of us who uh, try to be more discerning to to stay strong because that can be difficult. Um, at our conference, we get that a lot. People walk up to me and assume, you know, I believe in this or that, chemtrails or, or some of these other concepts that I just do not buy into. And they, they're a little taken aback when I don't believe in these things because – like you said, at they're like, well, I thought you were on the team, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. at times, that kind of breaks their their world. It may, opens some of these people up a lot. Uh, instead of being negative towards me, a lot of times they'll then start to critically think that, well, maybe I need to think more critically about some of these topics. Oh, well, that's encouraging. Yeah. I, what you're talking about um, – it's triggered two thoughts. Can I share mm -hmm. them? Okay. Please do. First of all, going back to my work as a MUFON field investigator and, and working with UFO witnesses, I would say that the vast majority, I think I researched about 150, 160 cases during my time with MUFON. And I would say probably at least 90% of those people um, – would not care if you called them a believer or a skeptic. It would be completely irrelevant to them mm -hmm. because what they've done is the they, in most cases, they have reported their seeing a UFO for the very simple reason that they just want to know if anyone else has seen the same thing. You know, they've been they they were in many cases watching some UFO show on cable TV and they saw a reenactment <laughs> and it reminded them of something they had seen and they thought, oh, this is, I'm not the only person who's ever seen this. Maybe I should report my sighting to MUFON and maybe they can tell me, number one, maybe they can tell me what I saw, which we're not always able to do. But the big thing is they can just tell me if anybody else has ever seen this. And I always found that really interesting. It's kind of like, you don't really care. You're not really a believer or a non-believer. Mm -hmm. You've had an experience that was very real to you, and you just want to know what it was. So that was a real eye-opening thing. The other point I want to make, and this has to do with my book and sort of the marketing of the book. Um, so for the past two weeks or so, I've been doing an awful lot of interviews like this one and uh, media appearances and all sorts of things. And... Most interviewers will just sort of fall back on the really easy distinction of, well, Dr. Hynek started out a skeptic and then he became a true believer. And, you know, as you and I both know, that, you know, that's a little too black and white. There mm -hmm. are actually shades of gray that Dr. Hynek passed through. And to call him a true believer is going way too far because it's, mm -hmm. you know, brings up a lot of other issues. But in a 10-minute interview, you can't really, you know, I can't really tell, spend the 10 minutes on a radio interview, you know, correcting the DJ about using the term true believer. But it's an issue, and it's something that has come up over and over again in my interviews, and I, I, would, I would really like to be able to find some way to come up with a new way to express the same idea that doesn't bring all this black and white stuff into it. And, mm -hmm. and that's on me, because it's my book and they're my interviews. But yeah. it's just really interesting to see how most of these interviewers, and some of them have a lot of background in UFO research and studies. A lot of them don't. So the ones that don't, they just sort of reach for the handiest expression that sort of, you know, 
it, it gives you a quick image of what of what we're talking about and and you know so for a journalist or broadcaster it's obvious that they that's why they choose the term but there's not always the right kind of thinking behind it mm-hmm well you know this phrase on your website which I love I think it is part of the issue because I struggle with the same thing and your phrase is ambiguity is more convincing than certainty which I agree with a hundred percent but oh, amb- ambiguity comes with a lot of nuances mm-hmm. that are difficult to explain in, in a soundbite. Uh, and, of course, the media often, that's what they want. They want the short soundbite. So, yeah, somehow you're going to have to come up with a way to be uh, succinct uh, at explaining your concept there. You know who's good at that is Nick Pope. He's just oh. a, a genius at uh, kind of taking these complex ideas and putting them into a sentence or two so that they can be a quick, effective sound bite. But I understand your struggle. With your MUFON, before we move on to the book and Heineck, one of my favorite topics, uh, being a MUFON investigator, because I did that for years too, uh, one other aspect, which I, I totally agree, I, I, your perspective with the witnesses, another thing that shocked me were how many witnesses, and I, I wonder if you've experienced who ask or are a little afraid that they're going to get in trouble with the government for reporting their UFO. Oh, wow. Have I don't ever... think I've ever actually run across that. Really? I don't wow. think I, I don't think a single person has ever said that to me. Well, that's a good thing. It's probably been about 10 years since I was really out in the field talking with people, but that would come up a lot. And hopefully, because of the media attention on this topic, that, that's changed and people don't feel as frightened of the government for reporting no. UFOs. Well, but, there must be. There, there must be, there must be more of a realization today that the Air Force is really completely out of the picture. Yeah, and it could have been X Files when I was doing this. I think <laughs> it was X Files time, so that they right? thought that, uh, you know, they were going to have to be abducted by a Mulder or the, the Cabal. <laughs> yeah. So getting to Heineck, I love talking about Heineck because I try as much as possible to mention Heineck when I write or do interviews because. I don't want people to forget him because he was so important. Um, but let's, I guess, start off with what you were talking about, kind of the shades of gray in that Heineck was a true skeptic skeptics in that he thought this whole stuff was ridiculous to begin with in 1947 when he began this. But that changed. And maybe you can go over that with us. Well, that's another funny thing. Um a lot of people who are just sort of, it seems to me it's predominantly people who are just sort of stu- studying the UFO phenomenon, studying the history of UFOs, have it in their mind that there was this one, there's this one light bulb moment where Heineck immediately changed his mind. And it's hard to, it's hard to push against that and explain, no, it actually took place over, over about 14 years mm. of his life. It really was a long, slow, and sometimes painful process. And you can pick out the beginning and the end. The beginning was um, 1952, when uh, he had already spent in 1948-49, he had spent several months working for the Air Force's first UFO study project, Project Sign. And, you know, and his only job was to look through this stack of paper reports and say, oh, this one was obviously Venus, this one was obviously you know, a a meteor, this one was obviously a comet. So his job was just to debunk UFO sightings as misidentifications of astronomical 
bodies and phenomena. Well, a couple he goes he finishes that contract, goes back to teaching college. A couple years later, the Air Force comes back to him um, because the Air Force's UFO work was all done at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and Heineck was teaching at the Ohio State University in Ohio Westland. So he was just kind of a natural pick. So a couple of years later, they come back to Heineck, and they say, hey, we're still having a problem with UFOs. And Heineck's like, what? you got to be <laughs> kidding me. He, 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 he truly believed that when, when the UFOs sighting started in 1947, he just thought it's a fad. People are jumping about another Pearl Harbor. This will all fade away over time. Well, when he discovered that it hadn't faded away, that really made a huge impression on him. And then he further discovered that um, when he did the first work for Project Sign, he had been able to explain away about 80% of the sightings, which left 20% unexplained, and he didn't really, he wasn't worried about that. He figured they could all be explained in time. Well, when he comes back into the fold three years later with the Air Force on Project Blue Book, he discovers that there are still 20% of the sightings year after year that remain completely unexplained. So that's what started him changing his mind. That was also a time shortly after that when he was actually sent out by the Air Force to conduct his first field investigation of a UFO sighting in uh, Black Hawk, South Dakota, and Bismarck, North Dakota. So for the first time, Heineck's out in the field. He's talking face-to-face with UFO witnesses, many of whom he thought he was very, very impressed with, civil radar operators, Air Force personnel at, at uh, um, Ellsworth Air Force Base. Um, so that changed his thinking, too, because suddenly he could start seeing how how it operates psychologically when a person sees a UFO and how they decide to report it. And So all of these things sort of kicked off the process. It came to its head. He, he finally reached the full conversion point, I guess you could say, uh, in the wake of the 1966 uh, Dexter Hillsdale swamp gas case, <laughs> which is ironic because I believe it really was swamp gas. <laughs> oh, that, really? Yeah, and that's what made Heineck decide he was no longer gonna, you know, he, in, in his terms, he was no longer gonna carry water for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's sort of infamous, which is kind of strange. He's infamous for the swamp gas quote, um, which of course. Uh, people in UFO circles make fun of and think are, are ridiculous. And then at the same time, he's always he's also famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, for being a advocate for UFO research later in his life. Perhaps the biggest for, I mean, I think it could be argued he began um, civilian UFO investigations. Yeah, I th- I think you can I think you can make that that claim. He was certainly he was involved with the Air Force. You know, years before any of the civilian groups like APRO or uh, CSI started up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, the whole the whole um, the whole idea that he was he had people on both sides of the UFO argument angry at him after the swamp gas in- incident. Mm-hmm. I was I was really intrigued by that, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to write the book because I I wanted to try to understand how a guy who really was just sticking with the facts and who was trying to be a good scientist, how did that somehow land him in this position where the Air Force hated him and all of his UFO buddies, like Jacques Vallée, were furious with him too? Mm -hmm. How how could he have done that? (laughs) So 
that that was one of the things that really drew me into his uh, story. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of tackle maybe each of those two, uh, beginning with the Air Force. So he had expressed frustration that the Air Force um, didn't seem to look at, be looking for real answers, but they wanted him to come up with prosaic uh, uh, answers or quotes for the media, like right after a sighting would happen, like in the swamp gas situation. Um, without him being able to investigate. And he seemed to be pretty frustrated by that. Yeah, he was constantly hamstrung by the Air Force. And he, he you know, he, he found ways to sort of work around that over time. Uh, but it but it did take time, and he wasn't always very successful. So the, the Air Force usually won. Um, but, uh, yeah, his deals with the Air Force really, really are complicated. He... Part of it was that the project chief at Project Blue Book was changed over with alarming regularity. You know, nobody stayed in charge of Project Blue Book for very long, and they were usually low-level officers who really had no interest in the UFO topic, who were just kind of angry and resentful that they had <laughs> been stuck in this stuck in this situation. So yeah, that was that was always interesting. And Heineck, more often than not, with with rare exceptions. Mm-hmm. Heineck ended, ended up butting heads with his commanding officer on the UFO project. One interesting twist on this this whole thing, though, with the Air Force, is of course that the Air Force's initial UFO study, Project Sign, um, which started right at, in in right at the beginning of uh, 1948, Project Sign was actually leaning towards an extraterrestrial explanation for the UFO problem. They seriously were considering that. Their Project Sign's final report has pages and pages of speculation on life on other planets, especially Mars and Venus, and additional pages and pages seriously discussing the aerodynamic properties of cigar-shaped objects and disc-shaped objects. So the Air Force was actually seriously considering extraterrestrials in in 1948 and 1949. Um, And, you know, everyone's heard of the famous estimate of the situation, some of the officers on Project uh, Sign put together this document promoting the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and it was it was basically thrown in the trash by the Air Force Chief of Staff. Mm-hmm. The extraterrestrial hypothesis died a very a very uh, miserable death, and from then on, it was make the UFOs go away. So during this time too, I think part of the struggle you see from what different. Uh, people who were in charge of Blue Book or, or some of these investigations were dealing with, and Hynek, was that really it seems the higher-ups saw the whole UFO, at least sign, grudge, Blue Book, as a PR kind of, of issue where they were looking for uh, this group to be their interface with the public and to calm the public down and to kind of brush us away, uh, not really a, a, an investigation. Uh, which frustrated because especially for if you're in charge of this group, uh, you're you're in a lose lose situation. You're not going to make the public happy by poo pooing these these events, especially if they're seen by credible people. And you're not going to make the Air Force happy either because you're trying to walk this difficult line. Um, I guess my question though is getting to a lot of people uh, see this; they don't understand that PR part. So they assume that it's all a cover-up, that the Air Force is uh, 
trying to poo-poo all of this because they're covering up the real secrets. Um, it doesn't seem as though Heineck felt that way, but uh, did he? Well, in, in a sense, he did. Heineck's position is really interesting. He had spent enough time working with the Air Force on the UFO question that when it was all said and done, he just kind of felt like the Air Force really didn't know any more than they did in 1947, or not much more, mm-hmm. and that they and that they were really just kind of walking around with their heads in in a bad place. Um, he really he really did not give the Air Force much credit for you know a lot of people want to think oh the Air Force knows everything about UFOs they're keeping it a secret. Heineck was kind of like nah I don't think so. They're not that sharp. They wouldn't really be able to pull this off. He, he really truly felt that. I mean, he did believe that there were there were um, he did believe that there was a more um, secretive UFO study, most likely going on somewhere deep in the government, and he felt that way just because he just he felt that's how the government handles everything. Mm-hmm. You know, our government is addicted to um, secrecy and intelligence gathering, and so he thought. So it just makes perfect sense that somebody somewhere is collecting data on UFOs. But that doesn't mean they've figured anything out. It doesn't, doesn't mean right. that they understand anything more about it than they ever did. Mm-hmm. And he knew, and, and we know that a lot of the best cases were going elsewhere, yeah. um, So which would lead him to believe that. So yeah, and that's yeah. an, mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, and you know, there are a couple high-profile cases that most UFO enthusiasts are familiar with where the Air Force, you know, would publicly say, oh, we're not interested. And yet they were clearly very, very interested. You know, the Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. the Washington merry-go-round. Um, Edward Ruppelt, the project chief of Project Blue Book, was in Washington, D.C. when all of these flying saucers were appearing above the U.S. Capitol's restricted airspace. Ruppelt was there. But the Air Force would not let him investigate the sightings, um, even though they're one of the most you know, detailed, well-documented and plausible sightings in history. So there's that. There was the, uh, the Kelly Hopkinsville little, little man invasion of 1955. The Air Force publicly said, we have absolutely no interest in that. But in reality, there were Air Force types all over the place looking into that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the Air Force has never really done itself a whole lot of favors. They're, they're not very good at maintaining a lie. So, and before I move on, because you just touched on this, I love the Kelly Hopkinsville case because it kind of popularized the little green men term. Yeah. Um, and it was so highly, I do a talk uh, that includes it. It was super highly influential to uh, Steven Spielberg. It influenced E.T. and the Gremlins um, and so, uh, his work. Uh, but what did Heineck? I know Heineck investigated, and he felt the case to be credible, correct? Yeah, sadly, this was uh, one of the cases that I had to leave out of the final edit of the book. Oh, I, I, bummer. Yeah, I had written an entire chapter about Kelly Hopkinsville, and it was so much fun to research and write about. And then I, and then I had to delete the entire chapter. And the reason I had to delete it was because Heineck, Heineck never directly investigated mm. the case. He he investigated sort of secondhand years after the fact, so I couldn't really tie it into my Heineck narrative the way I had hoped to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was fascinated by that case. 
uh, in part because two very credible surrogates investigated it. Um, uh, Bud Ledwith, who Hynek worked with a couple years later on the satellite tracking network for um, for the government, uh, and Olivia, oh, I can't remember her last name, um, and I don't think Olivia is her first name either. At any rate, there's a, <laughs> a woman from, oh, I hope the name will come to me. Um, at any rate, she she had independent. She was with a a, a civilian uh, UFO research group, I think, in Ohio, and she had independently investigated the Kelly Hopkinsville case. Had interviewed almost all the witnesses, um, and so years later, she made contact with Heineck. Heineck put her together with Bud Ledwith. They sort of compiled their data from their investigations and came up with with a pretty complete picture of what had all happened. Uh, outside that farmhouse that night with the in, with the supposed invading aliens. It's a great story. It still gives me goosebumps when I read about it. <laughs> I even got the, I, I had the privilege of interviewing um, um, the daughter of Lucky Sutton, who was one of the prime witnesses of the case, one of the, one of the guys who started taking, you know, taking shots at the aliens. Um, and and uh, her, the story she told me was also hair-raising. She was a, she was a really fascinating hmm. person. But again, the Air Force was all over that place. The very next day, there a whole car full of military police from the local Air Force base showed up at the Sutton Farm and poked around, and they investigated everything. Mm-hmm. But officially, the Air Force had absolutely no interest. <laughs> it's pretty bizarre. And a little bit of background to, for the listeners who don't know, this was a case in, in what the 50s where these people uh claim that you know they were in the shack this couple families were hanging out there and these aliens that looked like gremlins came and attacked and uh these guys were out in the woods of alabama i believe it was or kentucky it's kentucky it's western kentucky and so they had their guns and they started shooting uh at these things and they would bounce around and roll away and all of this stuff they couldn't get them and finally uh, when there was a break in this, this uh, what they thought was an attack, they they went to the police and and the police said, you know, they were genuinely really freaked out. So just a really w- strange case. There's a video. I don't know if you've seen this, Mark. Um, Monsters of the UFO that covers this case very well. The reenactments are hilarious. They're really silly. Production-wise, <laughs> they're good, but they're just really funny. Um, well- you know how the Air Force tried to explain the whole thing away? Uh, an escaped monkey, I think they yeah, said. Yeah, an escaped monkey that had been painted with silver paint for some bizarre reason. An escaped from a circus or something. Yeah, which Heineck, <laughs> Heineck debunked that whole I, uh, thing from what I understand. Yes, he did. He debunked it pretty quickly. You'll have <laughs> to put that chapter on your blog or something. That would be yeah, so great. Because it's such a fun story. Let me know when you do. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So now moving to the other side, and I think a lot of us, especially those of us who are seen as quote-unquote skeptic, can can appreciate this where you feel like you're attacked from all sides. But uh, so the UFO community, in particular Valet, so Jacques Valet was kind of a protege of his. Um, what frustrated Valet uh, about Heineck? Well... He loved Heineck. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They were, they were, they had a fantastic friendship that spanned decades and decades. Um, but over time, Valet did get frustrated with Heineck about certain things. He thought that Heineck was 
uh, a little too passive, and he thought that Hynek was a little bit too much in love with being a, a UFO celebrity. Mm. Um, and I can I can see what he means about about uh, Hynek's seeming passivity. And Hynek admitted it himself. He said, "I you know, I play the long game. You know, I'm I'm not an attacker. I play the long game. That's just my tendency." So, um, yeah, it was a very interesting relationship. Got a little strained towards the end. They both sort of went off in different different directions to a certain degree with their UFO research. Um, but, yeah, a, a, an amazing friendship. Any of us would be lucky to have a friendship like the one they had. Mm-hmm. And it seems that uh, another thing, well, at least that frustrates people in the UFO field with Heineck, is that he was never willing to completely subscribe to the ET hypothesis. His argument, well, like Valet and others, is that there are other possibilities. Yeah, which is the only logical conclusion you can come to, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And you're right, not only did he not not only did he not um, commit to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, he wouldn't he wouldn't commit to any hypothesis mm-hmm. because there wasn't enough proof to prove anything. Um, but he was open to some really interesting ideas. You know, he was open to parallel dimensions. Um, he, he was open to the idea that maybe there's a psychic aspect to the UFO phenomenon. He was never really able to fully describe what he meant by that, but my interpretation is that he may may have considered that UFOs were psychically projected into our into the mind of the witness. So he was willing to entertain a whole lot of really fascinating, expansive explanations for the UFO phenomenon. But yeah, the fact that he wouldn't commit to any one thing drove a lot of people nuts. And you know, and and this is a question that came from that forum. You know that I put in there. You probably saw this, and a lot of people have this kind of idea is that because Heineck would not subscribe to or commit to uh, the ET hypothesis and because he really didn't also commit to the idea that there's this vast elaborate uh, conspiracy going on and hiding of information that people felt he would be privy to, there are suspicions that he uh, was part of the cover-up, that he sorted this disinformation agent um, with relations with the FBI and CIA and, and so forth. Um, did you find any indication that that could be true at all? No, and it, and it, it's not as if I spoke to anyone who said, oh, absolutely not, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, well, I take that back. I think, I think Dave Jacobs pretty much just sort of chuckled when I brought up that whole conspiracy theory. I don't think Dave Jacobs put a whole lot of stock into it. Um, but I was never able to come across any concrete evidence, one way or the other, of whether Heineck, whether Heineck, um, you know, knew about and participated in this Air Force cover-up thing. I think he would have. I think Heineck himself would have scoffed if anybody had suggested it. But you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's a tricky question. I never got to the bottom of it. I think the one person, the one person who may have had some insight into it aside from his late wife, Mimi, would have been his longtime friend, Jenny Zeidman, who um, I believe is uh, still with us in Ohio. I I tried to talk to her at the outset of uh, researching my book. We had a a very pleasant phone conversation, but it was also a very brief phone conversation. She She said, you are free to use any of my writings as resources, but I don't want to talk about it. 
Hmm. And that was that was the end of our conversation. And she was she worked very closely with Heineck for gosh thirty years probably. Um, and I think if anybody knows any of Heineck's secrets, it would be her. And she's not talking. And the thing is, when somebody doesn't want to talk, you have to respect it. There's nothing you can do. Right. So, and but the the other thing is is that you have an a uh, better. Uh, I guess, uh, opinion on this topic in that you've spent a lot of time, uh, more than most, at least at this point, examining his life. And so uh, that's why I think you, you, you would have an interesting perspective on that. I mean, especially if uh, you didn't run across anything that, that made you suspect that he was part of a cover-up. Well, there's only one story, and it's kind of, it's unsubstantiated, and it's a story told by Jenny Zeidman, in fact, hmm. about how after his first book, The UFO Experience, had won a, a local Ohio library book award, uh, Heineck went to Ohio to accept his award and go to a luncheon, and he met up with Jenny Zeidman. This was, I believe, in 1973, somewhere about in there. Um, but they sort of had this hush-hush conversation at their lunch table, about a supposed story about the Air Force recovering a recovering a flying saucer, recovering a UFO. Uh, and the conversation didn't go very far, according to Zeidman, because the because the speakers started speaking to the to the lunch program. So they so they couldn't continue the conversation and she said Heineck never spoke about it again. So it was just just yet another big question mark hanging over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. What did Heineck feel about the Roswell case? He didn't think much of it at all. He did, he did not care for saucer crash stories in general. And, and part of it was because if you're going to um, if you're going to talk about a saucer crash story, then you have to assume that the saucer itself is a nuts and bolts physical object. And he was never willing to commit to the nuts and bolts theory. Hmm. Really, really made him uncomfortable. He understood it. I mean, he would say, well, of course, we've taken our first steps into space. So, of course, we see strange things in the sky and we think they're somebody else's spacecraft. That's only logical. But he didn't put much stock in it at all. In fact, he thought um, he thought that people who spread saucer crash stories were being a little a little uh, irresponsible. He said, you know, I, I could tell a saucer crash story and I could, you know. I'd get a lot of attention for it, but it wouldn't be science and it wouldn't be honest. So he just also the people who, you know, the supposed saucer crash witnesses that are all out there. He just said, you know, I've I've talked with many of these people and, you know, we keep these reports on file. But um, nobody's willing to nobody's willing to speak under oath or give an affidavit because they all say, oh, no, no, I'm restricted by, you know, secrecy regulations with the Air Force. So he's like, well, OK, then, you know. You can't prove anything, so it's it remains just a story. Mm-hmm. What about any connections that he did have with the FBI or CIA? Well, you know, they, they I think I think you could say they traveled in similar circles. The only real run-in with the CIA um, that I went into in the book was um, uh, um, forgive me for a second. It's when the, the CIA put together their um, their study. Oh gosh, I guess it was the Robertson panel. Uh, there's so many studies now. I'm sorry, I'm kind of losing track mm-hmm. here. No problem. But the, in, in the wake of the Washington, D.C. sightings in the 50s, 
the CIA hastily put together a UFO study group because basically they had to figure out what on earth what on earth can cause our entire air defense system over our nation's capital to be thrown into absolute chaos. You know, that that became a CIA issue. So they looked into it, they found that there or at least officially they found that there wasn't any credible threat and so that's where it ended. And that was really to my knowledge and as far as you know what I go into in the book, that was really his only his only dealings with the CIA. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes me wonder about him um, in some of these cases is the whole aspect of patriotism. I mean, a lot of people in the UFO field, and you probably run across this with MUFON, a lot of them are retired military or, or people who are very truly patriotic. Um, and I would count myself among those. So it's it's kind of a, a, a interesting to think about you know, what if they had asked him to keep something secret? And it's entirely possible that he ran across occasionally um, top secret projects. And so they're like, hey, this is what this was. Please don't say anything about it or otherwise. But if your government came to you, let's say you were investigating a MUFON case and they said, you know, we don't know what the hell that was. Uh, it kind of is scary to us, um, but please don't say anything. Um, what would you do? <laughs> oh, that is such a good question. I suppose I would not say anything, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found that when when I've had when I've had questions about how to approach certain things, I'll be honest here, and I've gone to my higher ups at MUFON. I haven't. I, sometimes I get good advice, but sometimes I get no advice at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, because I think they're I, like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I think I would maybe be, you know, out in in deep trouble. I don't know. Um, I can tell a story, though, that kind of has some bearing on that, if we have a few minutes. Sure, go for it. One of my final MUFON cases wasn't a modern-day case. It was actually a historical case. It was a, a gentleman who had been in the Army in 1980, and he had been stationed here in Wisconsin, and he had taken part in in a, um, a mission here in Wisconsin that involved uh, housing Cuban refugees. At one point, the refugees tore down a huge section of fence around the camp, and so this gentleman and his uh, infantry division had to form a human fence to keep the Cubans inside the fort until they could rebuild the metal fence, okay? So this guy and his 50 or so comrades are out night after night, day after day, forming a human fence, sleeping under the stars, and one night, this guy I'm talking to sees a very strange rectangular craft floating among the trees, not far from where they were stationed. And he said everybody up and down the human fence was looking at it. So he knows there are other witnesses. And he saw what he believed were the silhouettes of two humanoid occupants in the craft. Hmm. They seemed to be watching him. And then uh, instead of freaking out and lying awake all night, he immediately fell asleep on his sleeping bag. So it's a very strange story. And I'm interviewing him, and we, we still keep in touch like a year and a half later because we both want to find out more. I, at one point I said, boy, if only, you, you know, if only we could contact some of the other people who were on duty that night. And he says, oh, I was the duty officer that night. I still have the roster. <laughs> so cool. he sends me, I've got, a, you know, I've got a duty roster from when this UFO appeared of all these 50 or so servicemen who are all standing out under the stars that night all seeing the same thing, apparently, floating through the trees. But this raises this whole question of how ethical is it to just start, like, calling these people up? <laughs> mm-hmm. Saying, hey, I heard about this thing you saw 30, 
30 some years ago. Would you tell me about it? I, you know, that's not, you can't just start doing that. You can't do that to people. You can't just call them up out of the blue and sort of confront them with something that they may very well want to forget. So I went to my MUFON superiors and for some advice and really got very little help except, well, you know, look them up on Facebook, try to contact them there. Well, that didn't, that wasn't helpful to me. The, the guy I've been in touch with though, the, the original witness, he is trying to reach out to some of his old, the old, some of his old buddies from, from his infantry division though. And I figure if he reaches out to them and makes contact, that's okay. And then he can send them my way and we can continue talking and see if maybe we can verify any of this story. Yeah. I hope and someday, because it's such a fascinating case. The witness is, is the witness is so earnest and sincere. I, I can't imagine that he's exaggerating or making things up. I felt he was a very, very um, reliable witness. So there you go. There's a case where, and of course, his commanding officers at the base were kind of like, you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> if you want to talk about what we all saw last night, you're on your own. How funny. So there's your government cover-up right there. Yeah. But but like you said, you know, I, I, it brings to mind. First of all, they don't want to talk about it. It was weird. They don't yeah. want to talk about it. Second of all, maybe they feel they shouldn't because uh, they want to be patriotic and they feel like, oh, you know, they probably wouldn't want me to talk about it. So there's all these things that get in the way of this information getting out there. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, you're right. These guys were, you know, they're 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 you know middle rank military officers. Of course, they're just going to follow the rules. They're just going to do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. You know who's calling up these type of people all the time are the Roswell guys. So people like Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt might be some people that you'll want to – you could ask for advice about uh, how to carefully approach these sort of topics with people who may not have thought about it for decades. That's an excellent suggestion, yeah. Well, thank you so very much. I guess before we leave, is there one aspect or, or something about Hynek that you think people, maybe especially people interested in UFOs, should know that don't? Well, I was fascinated to learn early on about his mystical leanings hmm. when he was a student. So I'm, I, I can never really pinpoint it, but I'm guessing it was roughly, you know, high school to college years. Um, he was really he was interested in the, the teachings of the Rosicrucians. Wow. He was he was very interested in the writings of, of a mystic named Rudolf Steiner. A lot of people know Steiner as the founder of the Waldorf education movement, um, but he also taught and wrote a lot about the idea of a, of here 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 comes again the parallel dimension. Mm -hmm. um, Steiner wrote about a, a dimension, the supersensible realm, where <laughs> where spiritual beings lived, perhaps even deceased human beings lived, and he felt that if we could learn to develop our innate abilities, we could cross over into that realm at will. Heineck was fascinated by that thinking when he was a student and in his later years when he was dealing with, you know, a slow decline from brain cancer, he returned to those uh, teachings and, you know, kind of started thinking along those lines again. So that that to me was a surprise and I think it'll surprise a lot of people. Just that that mystical, spiritual element to his character that really never gets talked about. And one last thing, sorry, uh, I just remembered something else someone had asked in that forum about his cartoons, that he, he drew cartoons, is that what it is? <laughs> no, I think they're referring to two different things. He loved cartoons, in news he loved the comic strips in newspapers, and he subscribed to the New Yorker 
which is famous, I guess, for its cartoons. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. one of his favorite parts of the magazine. But there's another cartoon story, and that came about because of the swamp gas case in Michigan hmm. in 1966. In the wake of the swamp gas case, when Heineck became a national punchline and swamp gas became a national punchline, there were many, many cartoonists in magazines and newspapers um, cartoon drawing cartoons about flying saucers and aliens and poking fun of Heineken, poking fun of swamp gas. So, and I, I know for a fact, I was never able to find more than one or two in any one place in his files. <laughs> the story goes that he had a huge file somewhere filled with a collection of swamp gas cartoons that he, he sort of wore them as a badge of honor, even though they were poking fun of him. Oh, that's funny. That, that's a person with a good sense of humor. Yes, it absolutely is. He didn't. He never took himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and boy, that's a really good thing in this kind of field. And I've heard that, that he had a good sense of humor and he was charming and a bit of a ladies' man. <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I can't wait to read the book. Uh, I haven't read it yet. It's only been out for 10 days. Um, so uh, really exciting. And, and it's great that you've gotten so much attention in these last 10 days or so, uh, even though the book has only just come out. And this interview went so quickly, like all the great interviews that are so much fun, they go so quick. So we'll definitely have to have you back sometime. I would love to. Anytime you ask me back, Alejandro, I would love to do it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much to Mark for coming on the show. What a great time I had. I mean, the time flies by. Not only do I love the topic of J. Allen Hynek because he's one of my heroes in this field, but Mark also is so knowledgeable and he's he's uh, been an investigator uh and a researcher in this field. So he's got a genuine interest, which is also very refreshing. So I just had a great time talking to Mark. Uh, Be sure to go get his book. I mean, uh, I think this is a really important book. It's, It's really important to understand and to know Hynek. The book is called The Close Encounters Man, how one man uh, made the world believe in UFOs. And I do believe, you know, Heineck is kind of the grandfather of modern UFO research because he uh, was the first one, you know, at least to, he did it officially, of course, as we talked about, but then continued it uh, in the civilian world. And, of course, we've all kind of stand stood on his shoulders if we've continued to do so. Uh, you can find his book on Amazon. You can even just type in The Close Encounters Man or Alan Hynek or Mark O'Connell, Alan Hynek. You'll find it. You can also find some information about Mark on his website, which is highstrangenessufo.com. That's just highstrangenessufo.com. And you'll see there uh, that article he was talking about, about UFOs and the Rolling Stone. So that's really cool. I'm excited to read that, the Rolling Stone thing. So uh, really cool stuff. I'm so happy that Mark was able to come on the show and we'll definitely have to talk to him some more. So really interesting stuff. So check that out. Otherwise, I also want to thank Mark Aruski Willis for being on the show. 
And speaking of UFO news, uh, like I mentioned before, it's the Roswell UFO Festival. So the Roswell UFO Festival is coming up, and it's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be this weekend. That's where I'll be. I'll be leaving in just a couple days. I'll be there from Thursday until Monday. So I'll be a week from today. I'll be coming home. And unfortunately, even though they have direct flights from Roswell to Phoenix, because I'm going to be flying directly out there, I've got to go through Texas coming home. So it's going to be a long day of travel. Another reason it'll be difficult, if not impossible, for me to have a show posted uh, a week from today. But with any luck, if I'm able to capture an interview out while I'm out there, then we will have a show posted uh, Tuesday. But worst case scenario, don't worry, people, because we will have a show then the following Monday and and more coming up. And we'll be talking about some of this exciting stuff that I told you we'd be talking about. But there's going to be some great people out there uh, in Roswell. If you're going to miss them and you're bummed about it, they're doing different talks. Like for the Daily Record, actually, we're all talking about Roswell. So it'll be all kinds of stuff about Roswell. So I'll be talking about Roswell itself. Um But we do have some of the speakers uh, on our Open Minds video portal. So if you go to openminds.tv, you'll see this thing about a video portal. And that's where you can watch UFO Congress lectures online uh, streaming video. So kind of like uh, UFO Congress Netflix. And it's a lot cheaper than Netflix. And you can see hundreds of videos. Um, Some of them we posted recently uh, from the recent UFO Congress are... Uh, Richard Dolan, his talk, which he wrote up uh, especially for the UFO Congress. Avon Smith, uh, who's also going to be at the UFO Museum. She's an abduction researcher, and you'll be able to look at hers. Uh, In fact, she was our uh, Lifetime Achievement Award winner at the UFO Congress. And then David Marler, he's actually going to be speaking. Dolan and Marler are going to be speaking uh, with me uh, at the Chase uh, event for the the Daily News. It's sponsored by KGRA. And, uh, and, oh, you know what I forgot to mention, too, is KGRA, is they're the people that I got news about the UK UFO files from. Because the UK gentleman who got the letter saying that those were uh, posted, he sent that letter to KGRA, and they posted it on their site, and that's how I found out. So that was from Race Hobbs first, uh, but Race Hobbs will be out there with KGRA, and so that's who Dolan and Marlon, Marler and I will be speaking with at the Steakhouse near the Sallyport Inn, um, whereas Avon Smith and some of the others we talked about will be at the UFO Museum a few blocks away uh, downtown. But it'll be a lot of fun, so there'll be a lot going on, and... One way or another, I'm going to be walking in the parade because uh, a lot of my friends here from Arizona MUFON are going out and there's going to have an Arizona MUFON float. So I'm going to be participating in that because I don't think the Roswell Daily News has a float. If they do, I'm going to have to run back and forth or something. I don't know. But it's going to be a lot of fun. So hopefully you can make it. Uh, It's really interesting. And of course, this is the 70th anniversary. So this will probably be bigger than it has been in the last few years. It's going to be hot, so be prepared for that. Don't bring any jackets or coats. You're not going to need those. What you're going to need are those little fans that you can hang on your neck that that you could squirt water in your face. That's probably going to be something better to wear uh, than any amount of clothes. So it's going to be hot out there in the desert. Luckily, the parade now is at night, so it's a night light parade. So... 
uh, we've got all kinds of lights and stuff that we're going to be using out there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully you can make it. If not, I'll tell you about it when I get back. And you can still watch Dolan and Yvonne and David Marler on the Open Minds video portal. So check that out. What else? I guess all of the news that we talked about, you can find about find at openminds.tv. So go check that out. My other thank yous, the other people I want to thank. I want to thank Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. Thanks again. It's beautiful, wonderful music. I love his music. It's just, I don't know what it is. I just really... I just really like it. You know how sometimes there's just music that you like. You just kind of connect with. And I really like what Caleb does. You could go to uh, the UFO radio page at openminds.tv and read more about Caleb and go download some of his music uh, if you really like that music. Sometimes I get people saying, hey, man, where do I get some of that cool music? Well, just go check out the radio page and you'll be able to find it. It is cool music, so I don't blame you for being excited about it. So thank you to Caleb. And finally, I want to thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Hopefully, I get to meet some of you this weekend in Roswell. If not, then uh, hopefully I'll meet you in uh, February at the UFO Congress. If not, luckily we get to uh, spend time together nearly every week, most weeks, here virtually at Open Mind UFO Radio. And I love the time we spend together, and I'm so thankful that you join me here on a regular basis. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, I certainly did. Thank you so much. Until next time, adios muchachos.